The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor Kate Dunn during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Reverend Dunn. Please pray with me. Holy God, word made flesh, let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, penetrate the corners of our hearts so that we may experience your living word in spirit and in truth. Amen. A reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is made was seen from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach God must believe that God exists and that God rewards those who seek God. By faith, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered God faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, Descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, 
For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, God has prepared a city for them. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. This past May, in an episode of Super Soul Sunday, Oprah Winfrey sat down with Tara Westover to discuss her memoir, Educated, about her experience growing up in a family of survivalist Mormons who were so isolated from society that throughout her childhood, she received no formal education or health care. She was, however, taught to read so that she could read the Bible. During their conversation, Tara mentioned one of her favorite scriptures. I loved it when I was a Mormon, she says, and I'm not a Mormon, and I still love it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. No sooner were the words out of her mouth than the people in the audience began to clap, at which point Oprah said, church people, church people in here. This is one of those scriptures that speaks to us on multiple levels, in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. Perhaps, like with the best of poetry, we feel the impact of the words more than we understand them, intellectually. Though certainly, intellectually, the declaration that there's something else out there, something else that's good out there, something that we cannot see that would fill our hearts with joy if we could see it, that comes to us as good news. These words offer something in direct opposition to the kind of anxiety that many of us carry around like a burden we've gotten so used to we don't even notice, but which might be summed up as fear is the assurance of things dreaded, the conviction that something awful really is out there waiting, and this whole terrible situation we're in is about to get much, much worse. Something like that scene in the movie The Fly where the scientist played by Jeff Goldblum begins turning into an insect and pleads with one of the characters, don't be afraid. And the reporter character played by Gina Davis responds, no, be afraid, be very afraid. If we're honest, I think many of us live with this kind of fearful mindset at least some of the time, if not all of the time. We live in a fear-based society which relentlessly programs us to be afraid of the people around us, of the state of the world, of the unknown future. This fear requires us to be in a perpetual state of hypervigilance. We fear mass shooters who could be anywhere at any time. We fear the havoc that climate change is reaping in our world, We fear ever greater weather extremes, scarcity of food and water 
in livable parts of this planet. We fear pollution of our oceans. We fear identity theft. We fear not having enough money to meet our basic needs. We fear loneliness. We fear illness. We fear death. No wonder this assurance that despite everything our eyes and intellect tell us, things really could get better, not worse, offer such comfort. Yet, these familiar words, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, can roll off the tongue so easily, they risk becoming a mere platitude, a suggestion of a rosy, simplistic belief that somehow everything will work out in the end. What is the author of Hebrews really trying to say to this congregation of second-generation Christians who are facing a crisis of commitment? They have undergone great hardship, including public ridicule, confiscation of property, imprisonment, Some of the congregation have left the faith. Some are showing their ambivalence by not coming to worship. Some have grown disheartened by the delay in the coming of the Lord, which is making them feel very foolish. Their growing awareness that God operates on a different timetable from their own has them questioning whether devoting their lives to work for a promised future they may never personally experience is worth the effort. So what does the preacher do? He starts telling stories. Stories about people throughout the biblical timeline who have chosen to participate in God's story, beginning with Abel and continuing with Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Rahab, Samson and David and many more up to their own present time. He tells stories of people who lived in difficult times and faced difficult choices, who demonstrated their trust in God's promises by how they chose to live their lives. What do these people have in common? The most obvious trait they share is that none of them is perfect. Not one of them comported themselves with what we would consider saintly decorum. Abraham made his wife Sarah pretend to be his sister and had no objection to her becoming part of Pharaoh's household for a while. Sarah cast out her servant Hagar with her young son, forcing them to flee into the wilderness. Moses was a murderer. Rahab, a prostitute. David, an adulterer. What else do these people have in common? According to the author of Hebrews, they were all seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly country. They all shared a sense of being foreigners on earth. Now that is an intriguing trait. Built into the Israelites' legal code were instructions for how people were to offer their first fruits and tithes to God. 
you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien. In the same way that it was essential for the people to hold on to that communal memory of having once been foreigners themselves, they were also commanded to treat the foreigner in their midst with kindness. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Throughout the biblical story, there's an ingrained sensitivity to the experience of being a foreigner, as well as a mandate of compassion for people who have had to leave the home they've known to escape war, violence, oppression, and hopelessness, or in search of food, safety, freedom, and hope. Like so many people today who are fleeing Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Congo, Myanmar, Honduras, El Salvador, like so many of the people at our own southern border. This biblical call to remember, to keep fresh in our awareness that a wandering Aramean was my father, seems designed to prevent the people of faith from becoming complacent or settled or feeling like they are insiders who have arrived, lest they lose compassion for those who are strangers in the land. We may not feel like we need reminders. We, like the people originally addressed in this letter and like the saints lifted up by the author, may know full well that sense of restlessness, that sense that we're always searching for something, in the meantime, we need to make choices every day about how we're going to live our lives. In his book on leadership, Good to Great, Jim Collins popularized a concept called the Stockdale Paradox, which was named after James Stockdale, a naval officer who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Describing how he survived his years of imprisonment and torture, Stockdale talked about holding two perspectives simultaneously. His trust that somehow he would survive this ordeal and someday in the future he would see his wife again, and his acknowledgement that in the present he was in hell. And the only way that he could survive that hell was to do everything in his power to lift the morale and prolong the lives of his fellow prisoners. The people lifted up by the author of Hebrews all share this same ability to maintain their faith in God's promises for what the future holds and to recognize and respond to the very real challenges facing them and their community in the present. Last week, when I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I asked people, who would be on this list if we expanded it to include the past 2,000 years? Who are the people whose stories, whose testimonies continue to offer encouragement and hope all these many years later? Here are some of the names that came up. I nominated Augustine, the 4th century bishop of Hippo 
who wrote what many consider the first autobiography, sharing the confessions of his decades-long search for God. I so appreciate his willingness to share his own struggles so that others, seekers, might see themselves in his spiritual journey and take heart. I love the honesty with which he recalls his youthful prayer to God, grant me chastity and continence, only not yet. And I find strength in the conviction of his mature faith when he tells God, you have made us for your sake, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Someone nominated Gregory of Nyssa and told me about the Episcopal Church in San Francisco that bears his name, which has dancing saints depicted all around the sanctuary, as you can see on your bulletin cover. The saints depicted include King David, Mary Magdalene, Francis of Assisi, Martin Luther, William Blake, Sojourner Truth, Florence Nightingale, Malcolm X, Anne Frank, Margaret Mead, Thurgood Marshall, and Desmond Tutu, testifying to Gregory of Nyssa's conviction that every human progressing toward goodness plays a part in the salvation of the world. Someone nominated the 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich. She wrote, in my folly, I often wondered why, by the great foreseen wisdom of God, the onset of sin was not prevented. For then, I thought, all should have been well. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered with these words and said, It was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Someone nominated the 16th century Christian mystic Teresa of Avila, who wrote, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion into the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. Someone nominated Harriet Tubman, who guided over 300 slaves through the Underground Railroad to freedom, and who declared, God's time is always near. He set the North Star in the heavens. He gave me the strength in my limbs. He meant I should be free. Someone nominated Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, for her unstinting commitment to peace, nonviolence, and racial justice, who wrote, The gospel takes away forever our right to discriminate between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Someone nominated Martin Luther King Jr., whose dream continues to motivate and inspire. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Someone nominated Mr. Rogers, the Presbyterian minister whose television show taught millions of children how to be good neighbors. 
and reminded them in times of trauma and distress to look for the helpers. Mr. Rogers said, we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. Where do we find ourselves in God's story? How do we find that balance between trusting that God exists, that God loves us, that God is already actively working right now to give us a future with hope, and acknowledging the great challenges we face as individuals, as a church, in our country, and throughout our world, because we are not at home in the realm of God yet. What are we to do but keep participating in the life of faith? Keep reading the Bible. Keep confessing our sins. Keep accepting God's pardon. Keep singing our hymns. Keep saying our prayers. Keep serving our community. Keep seeing the face of Christ and everyone we meet. Former Bishop of Edinburgh, Richard Holloway, writes, We want to make life before death more just and abundant and joyful for everyone. And some of us find that meditating on religion's best narratives and listening to its wisest teachers and being moved by its music and poetry strengthens us for that work. So let's continue to tell the stories of the saints, those known to many and those who may be known only to us who all make up that great cloud of witnesses. Let's hold on to the best dreams of the world that we who were made in God's image can imagine. A world where our hearts can finally find our rest. A world of safety and plenty and peace and love. A world with room enough for everyone. A world where no one is a stranger. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and always. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331.
Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.